0: Can I please have your attention? Greetings dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Twitter followers probably know right now about poor Zoe had 18 teeth pulled out. We will talk about all of that another time, but she's okay. I'm okay. There's all that kind of stuff. Instead, we're going to get right to it. Um, we have a delightful guest today. Um, I, I I get all this grief from people who say, I'm always, ex- I have an exciting guest today. So I'm trying to find up other superlatives Um, so I don't want anyone to think that I'm not excited about this guest. I'm also working on very little sleep because I was up with the poor dingo. So, um, Alexandra Hudson is an award-winning writer an adjunct faculty member at Indiana University's Lilly Family School of Philanthropy and the curator of the newsletter Civic Renaissance. Her new book is The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. Alexandra, welcome to The Remnant.
1: Jonah, thank you for having me.
0: Okay, so first question I always ask of authors is, what's your book about?
1: (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, I'm so sorry about poor Zoe. And thanks for having me despite little sleep. I know how hard that is with two small children of my own. Um, But my book is about the most important question of our day, which is how might we flourish across deep difference? And what does that look like? In our own divided moment, I while I was writing my book, The Soul of Civility, you know, I, I wrote it after I had emerged from a very toxic time in public life, and I was in federal government, 2017 to 2018, and um, I started writing this book. And what I realized is that this is not actually a new question. We hear a lot of thoughtful people decry our moment right now as uniquely divided, uniquely rude, uniquely savage and barbaric, yet. I discovered that most eras tend to feel like they're living through the most uncivil, uh, the most savage, the most barbaric moment of civilizational decline. And um, this question of how might we flourish across deep difference is the defining question um, of liberal democracy, the classical liberal project, of, of the democratic project, of the human social project. This is the question of of our species. How do we overcome the self-love in our nature and flourish and and, and, and let our social facets develop? As I talk about in the book, um, there's a duality to our nature. We're profoundly social as a species. We become fully human in relationship with others. And yet morally and biologically, we're driven to meet our own needs before others. And those two facets of ourself, of our nature, are intention. And that is why this joint project of living well with others in friendship in community and civilization and a democracy is precarious it is always fragile and it always has been our, our own moment included and so my book is about um, how to how to sustain uh, how, to, how, to, how to sustain this this joint project of living well with others and um, and the stuff of the good life how do we achieve the stuff of the good life even with the myriad epiphenomena that um that we we are all very familiar with, um such as our ubiquity ubiquitous media culture, um social media, uh, other 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 novel facets of our of modernity that that do pose unique challenges to um to to this this challenge of civility, but it is a timeless, timeless question.
0: just to do some uh, level setting. I think I know the answer, but um what when someone says when you meet someone who says, Oh, you wrote a book, what's it about?' and then they ask you, well, what's the difference between civility and politeness? What, How do you answer that?
1: So I came to my uh, interest in this topic of social norms and manners, honestly. My mother, she's called Judy the Manners Lady. So I was raised in this home that was very attentive to manners and social norms and expectations. Um, while writing this book, Tiny Footnote, um, I realized, I came to discover that my mother is one of four women who are internationally renowned experts on manners and etiquette. Who are named Judy? There are four of them. I think it's like a generational thing. The most famous is probably Miss Manners, the Washington Post columnist Judith Martin. But my mother is is one of one of uh, three others on top of that. So uh, my mother is unbelievably gracious and hospitable and kind. She embodies the tr- the soul of true civility, just transforming the outsider to the insider, stranger into a friend. Our home growing up was a revolving door of. Of newcomers to our community, immigrants, homestays. And, um, she's just zealous about the human social project and pat- and c- she cares about manners to the extent that they support the human social enterprise. Um, I, she also taught us to mind our P's and Q's, how to set the table, how to cut our food. I'm constitutionally allergic to authority. That's part of why I am uh, a classical liberal and, and dispositionally conservative. And so I remember always questioning these rules and driving my mother crazy. I wanted, I hungered to know why. And I wanted a moral foundation, an understanding of, of where these norms and expectations came from. Was it just because somewhere, someplace, sometime decided we should do it this way? And was that sufficient to, for, for why we should do it now? But my mother uh, promised that following these rules of propriety would, would serve me well in work, in school, and life. And she was right until I got. To federal government. I was at the U.S. Department of Education with Secretary DeVos, and for reasons that had nothing to do with DeVos, it was just the nature of government, the nature of, of our divided moment, um, it was a very disparating experience. I saw these two extremes. On one hand, I saw these people, uh, this contingent of people who uh, were willing to they were hostile and abrasive, but they were willing to bully and step on anyone to get ahead and get what they wanted. And on the other hand, they were there was this contingent that I first thought was my was my contingent. They were they were polished and poised and polite. Yet these were the people that would smile at me one moment, flatter me one moment, and stab me in the back the next. And this really puzzled me, because one thing my mother had said growing up was that manners mattered because they were an outward extension. Of our inward character, and here I was surrounded by people who were um, well mannered enough, yet ruthless and cruel. And so, this clarified for me several things. Um, one of which was this essential distinction between civility and politeness. This this experience uh, clarified for me that um, politeness is is we hear people use these words interchangeably all the time, but they're actually very different. Politeness is manners; it's it's etiquette; it's it's external; it's behavior; it's technique civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are um, worthy of a bare minimum of respect just by virtue of the imago Dei, by virtue of our innate dignity as human beings. And that crucially, sometimes actually respecting someone requires breaking the rules of propriety, being impolite, telling a hard truth, engaging in robust debate. That, um, Um, So I think it's essential that we disambiguate civility and politeness in our modern language to help us clarify what we want more of and what we want less of in our public discourse now.
0: I like disambiguate, I got to tell you. Um, So uh, it's funny, I I mean, thinking about this, I grew up in New York City. Um, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and um, it's funny how, like, the my mom wasn't Jewish. I was still raised Jewish. My mom came from a very Southern background where the forms were really important. Um, And my dad came from the Bronx where the substance was really important. (laughs) And, um, and there's, it's, it's funny how the, the Jewish conscious concept of mensch doesn't really get to manners, but it gets to your conception of civility, right? It's like, you're a good person, but sometimes good people drink, eat soup loudly, and they tell you uncomfortable truths, right? And um, and so it's funny. I, I like this definition of civility because you know I read this book, Suicide of the West, and where I, I I keep trying to make this point over and over and over again that civilization is a is is doesn't just describe a geographic or cultural space; it's a process. You know, uh, on the on the remnant bingo card. Um, this quote, this line from Hannah Arendt, where Western every generation Western civilization is invaded by barbarians, we call them children, Um, is sort of central to like the whole my whole spiel. And babies are barbarians. I mean, they're a friggin' adorable. And uh, I remember James Q. Wilson once had a great footnote where he said, "Not social scientists have not spent enough time studying the concept of cuteness because if babies weren't cute." we would not tolerate them. If they were gross reptilian things, Um, like the hassle wouldn't be there. But, um, and um, so babies have, we come into this world with, with factory preset software, but we need updates. And I always make this argument that that's what we call civilization, right? We civilize barbarians into adult citizens. It's all the same Latin roots. It's all the same concept. And, Manners, you can have, I'm sure there are societies where their definition of good manners are horrifying, Um, but it's just like an ethical code that everyone sort of agrees to. But civility, I think you're right, is much more deeply tied in the liberal project rightly understood.
1: And I I love etymology. I love the story and history of our language, of our words. It, it's not just fascinating, but it's also a fun, kind of mnemonic. It's stories about, you know, that help us remember um, things better. So I the etymology of civility and politeness supports this distinction I make. Um the Latin root of politeness is polier, which means to smooth or polish. It's it's external. That's what civility does. It focuses on the outside and it's superficial, polishes over difference as opposed to giving us the tools to grapple with difference head on. The etymology of civility is, as you noted a moment ago, kivitas. It's the acuitas, uh, my friend Spencer Claven would correct me if he were here, that um, it's the, the Latin root of, of citizen, city, and citizenship. And of course, as you noted, civilization. And it's the conduct befitting a citizen in the city that, again, requires sometimes being impolite, especially in a democracy. Robust debate, disagreeing, risking offending people is the lifeblood of, of our free and flourishing way of life. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable why people make, conflate these two ideas. Samuel Johnson in his 1755 dictionary, this, this, um, the first dictionary of the English language, he defined civility in terms of politeness, politeness in terms of civility. And we've been doing it for all his virtue, as I love Johnson, but for our, for all his virtues, uh, we've been doing it wrong ever since. Is, is kind of my argument in the book. Uh, if you go to dictionary.com right now, you'll see an entry in, in civility in terms of politeness, politeness in terms of civility. And today we we have these two contingents. On one hand, there are people uh, we hear, you know, we're, we hear people say we're, we're so divided right now and we need more civility and comity and gentility. And they hearken back to this golden era of, of, uh, of, of, harmony in public life. And we just need more civility and politeness to help us do life together now. And then we have this other contingent that says, no, civility and politeness are part of the problem. They're tools of white supremacists, of the patriarchy, of people in positions of power to keep the powerless powerless. So we need less civility and politeness in public life. We need to burn it all down for the name of justice and and equality and social progress. And what both these contingents miss. Is this essential distinction between civility and politeness um, that, that that is central to my book and central to what I think we need we need right now? And I, I love that you said that you know um, we you, you, you have this one foot in southern culture. I just got back from tour. Of, I just got back on book tour from from North Carolina. The motto of North Carolina is "esse quam videre," the Latin uh, for "to be rather than to seem." which is so funny because the south is known for this stereotypical sort of bless your heart culture and and of course the bless your heart culture is is the archetype of politeness over civility like saying one thing you know oh bless your heart but meaning like you're an idiot you know <laughs> like that inner inner discontinuity
0: <laughs> so what are some what are some of the distinct tools of civility as distinct from politeness i mean other than telling hard truths which Telling hard truths. I, I I get the point. I agree with the point. But at the same time, it can't define civility because civility has to be more than that. Because otherwise, the the anti-civility people on the left and right will say, "Well, that's what we're doing." Right. So, what are some of the other tools about that you think define civility?
1: Well, two things. One um, is I reclaim the whole tradition of civil disobedience and this conception of of civility. That yes, civility demands telling hard truths, engaging in a robust debate. Sometimes it requires protest. It demands action. And our, our country was, was founded on protest. It was founded on resistance and civil disobedience. So I draw from my whole chapter on civil disobedience, drawing from Thoreau, Gandhi, Dr. King. Um, and I, I, um, we can focus on Dr. King for a second because in his, in his conception of civil disobedience, um, you know, he, he, for anyone who wanted to be part of his peaceful, nonviolent resistance, they under, had to undergo this process called purification. And it was basically purification was cultivating the disposition of civility. It was cultivating love and affection for the people who held bigoted views, whom they were protesting. And that had, that, that informed, that required, that compelled them to protest, that, that, that compelled the letter writing campaigns, the sit-ins, the marches to, because that was an act of, of love saying, I respect you enough to, to confront you with your inaccurate view of the world and other human beings. Um, but at the same time, that civility demands action, compels it out of a basic respect for the personhood and dignity of others. It also takes certain action off the table. For example, violence, dehumanizing um, um, someone by destroying their property or person, or, or ad hominem. Attack. So there's that duality that that civility both compels action and takes certain action off the table. Uh, another example of civility in practice. Um, I, I I love Adam Smith. Um, he has this great distinction between justice and beneficence. So justice is kind of this do no harm ethic. It's like a negative act. Like don't you know you do you, I do me. And he, and, and and Smith says um, we need justice in a society to survive. We we you know people just not actively harming others just you know going their separate ways and the sort of negative ethic, but we need beneficence to thrive and beneficence is this old word that I think is due for a revival uh, that means active goodness like the sort of above and beyond this this super arrogatory super erogatory is this idea in Catholic theology of of kind of bonus points things are like that are that are just like extra. And I have a whole chapter dedicated to hospitality that kind of encompasses this ethic of beneficence, this act of goodness that we need not just to to peacefully coexist, but to actually flourish as human beings in community together. Um, so I, um, I, I call hospitality this high and noble expression of, of civility that, um, it, it's it's we hear people say you know we're less hospitable we're less civil than we were in past eras and I just I don't know if that's necessarily the case but I, I, I do think that it's easier we're not as codependent in, in, in our current moment um in past eras um like thousands of for for, for most of human history in fact staying put was the norm and tra- traveling was was atypical and now it's the inverse is true we're always on the move we're always you know moving cities we're always traveling about for most of human history traveling was a risky endeavor you you carried what money you had on you and if you lost that you were you were forlorn like you 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 if you if you were in need you showed up at someone's home knocked at the door asked if you could stay there and either they welcomed you a complete stranger into their home or you died. (laughs) And so across history and culture, I I draw from many different ethical, religious, philosophical traditions. There is this vibrant concept of, of why we ought to show hospitality to the stranger in need, even though it's risky, um, mutually, mutually precarious, mutually risk risky. Um, be because of our common humanity, because we don't know when we might, or someone we love might be down and out, down and, out and in need. Um, so I love, I love the etymology of, of hospitality. For example, um, it's, it's, you know, the, the Latin root hospice gives us our word hospitality. It also gives us our, our, our Latin root hostility because that's, that there's a duality to our nature and a duality of the hospitable enterprise. Like you as a, 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 a stranger at someone's doorstep, going into someone, someone's home, a complete stranger's home, as, as was very common through most, much of human history. That's, that's a risky enterprise. You, as a host, welcoming a stranger into your home is a very risky enterprise. Um, the, 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 the Latin root hospice means, means stranger, friend, host, and, and guest. So we're united in this, in this, um, this vulnerability of, of, of the hospitable enterprise that, uh, is kind of countercultural right now. We're kind of, we kind of prize invulnerability and, and safety and comfort in our current moment. So, um, and, and again, today we have things like credit cards. We have things like a vast network of hotels, travels easy and affordable, and we don't need to just show up on people's doorsteps. Um, in order, in order to, we, you know, if we're in a strange that we get stranded in a city, we just whip out our credit card and pay, pay for a hotel that night. So we're less dependent today than we were in past eras. But I think that we are just, um, just as capable of hospitality as I, as I've learned and, and researched.
0: Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders, no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So I'm a huge fan of, I'm a word guy. I know it doesn't sound like I am right now. Um, I sound more like Homer Simpson saying, please pass thing. scoop food with. You mean spoon, homie? Yes, but no. I, I I like etymology. I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a logophile. I do think it's an important distinction. Like when you say, because I want to, I want to probe this difference between politeness and civility thing a little deeper. But the the like the Samuel Johnson thing, where it's the circular one defines the other. They're su- treated as synonymous. Um, I've been having this ongoing debate with some with many people I am not friends with. And a few people who I am friends with for a while now about the um the differences in the etymology of nationalism and patriotism. And I'm quite adamant that there's a real difference between the two. Um, um at the same time it kind of doesn't matter if I'm wrong because we need the words to describe the different things that we're talking about, right? So like- It's
1: true, it's true.
0: Even if someone circles back on you and says, aha, but if you if you go look at what Pliny the Elder wrote or what Cicero wrote, and it turns out the politeness <laughs> and civility are the same, have the same thing. It doesn't, un, it's it's not like some magical spell that renders your argument irrelevant. It's It's like, oh, okay, so I'm wrong about the etymology who gives a rat's ass we still need to talk about this thing that i'm describing as civility and this thing that i'm describing as politeness yes. and these things are different things right and i'm not yes. saying that you're in danger of having your etymological bona fides you know uh, uh, erase but it's just it's it's sort of like what was it the, the 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 was it king was it king charles during the glorious revolution he thought that he could foil the usurpers um was it william of orange whatever by taking taking the royal seal, which was necessary to pass any decrees or edicts, right? And he threw it in the Thames. And he's like, ha, ah, now they'll be powerless once they get on the throne because they don't have this magical talisman. And they're like, "Nah, we'll just make another seal, right? I mean, like, right. the, like right. sometimes we we have a real bad tendency uh, uh, in the eggheadosphere of imbuing, of treating things as words and words as things. And sometimes that can, can steer us around. So anyway, I, I just want to get that off of my head because my brain was itchy. <laughs> and and get to, um, but also because, so this definition of civility is sort of inherent to...
1: Can I jump? Yeah. Can I jump in there for a second? Yeah, so I love, I love, I love, I love Samuel Johnson. He has this great line. Uh, speaking of patriotism, patriotism, that I'm sure you know, uh, that patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. He was not a fan of patriotism. He agreed with you for that that there was a, d- a difference between nationalism and patriotism. So, um, to your point about needing words to describe different things, you're absolutely right. And this is kind of the beauty of the English language. We, English is a descriptive language. So when, when Johnson set about to do this thing called, uh, there's a great biography of Johnson in his dictionary called defining the world, because that's what he did. He wanted to track down and define every single word in the spoken English language of his day. And when he did that, he didn't say, okay, how ought this word to be used? And let's define it accordingly. No, he said, how is this word used right now? in my own era. It's that that was his descriptive approach of of, of language. He wanted the the English dictionary to reflect the English as it was spoken. And that's very different from other languages. For example, French, the Académie Française in in France, they, they, they consider themselves these custodians of French heritage and culture that is all embodied in their language. And so they say I don't care how you use this word. This is its actual meaning. Like they're totally inflexible. They're very hesitant to add new words to, to the French dictionary, for example, um, because it is so, so emblematic of all that they value and their heritage and their culture. So this is the beauty of English though. It is it is descriptive and it, and it always has been from, from, from Johnson and beyond. It, it's organic and it, it's adaptive. And I've identified what I think is an urgent need. We need to cl- more clearly think about um, what what we want more of and what we want less of in a society and 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 so I've brought to the English language this this clarification as as others have done before me we're allowed to do this we're allowed to add new words Shakespeare did it why can't we you know um, and to, to to define you know not just being good you know right back to North Carolina's um, motto esse quam videri, not just to be good but what is it what not just to seem good what does it mean to actually be good and what I think what we, we need more of now in this society of the spectacle that we live in where we so prize and I'm happy to talk about this part of the book that that spectacular society uh fun some fun stories there we could get into but um in this era that really prizes what what appears versus what is especially in this um, social media era I think we need to focus on you know what is and, and, and true respect for others as opposed to just faux respect that politeness too often allows us to settle for
0: on the but so- on this idea of the of civility being essential to or part of the sort of larger, you know, liberal project of living in a free society and all the kind of stuff, was, was civility talked about in those terms to your knowledge, um, or you your telling? My sort of shorthand history of liberalism or how we how we got liberalism is that like we had the wars of religion where we kept trying where all these different countries kept our kingdoms or regimes kept trying to kill people who worshiped slightly differently than them. And that was a hot mess. And so finally through exhaustion, they said, okay, maybe we shouldn't uh, settle questions of conscience at the tip of a sword. We have to come up with something that creates some social space for people to have the right to be wrong about this, that, or the other thing. And it starts as a very narrow thing about, you know, encouraging Uh, about uh, having tolerance for stray protestant sects and whatnot and or very quickly but not the catholics and then over time it it grows and it gets more robust and so like in john locke's notes on toleration it's uh tolerate some protestants but not the catholics but by the time you get to thomas jefferson talking about these things he's like we have to have freedom for hindus jews pagans Vikings, whatever, right? It takes the principle and it broadens out. And the other part of it, and I promise there won't be a lot of German on here, but I'm a Hayek guy. And Hayek has this big distinction between the microcosm and the macrocosm, or what he calls the gesellschaft and the gemeinschaft. And the gemeinschaft is like the community, the people who know you as a human being, your friends, your family, your tribe, your community, whatever. And then there are certain rules in there that are different. Then the Gesellschaft, which is the extended order, the legal order, the market order. And the great thing about markets is it's the first system, successful system at least, that figures out a way for people to deal with strangers in a non-zero-sum way that um, also doesn't lead to people getting beaten over the head with a rock. And, um, uh, and so I'm just wondering, it, you may have a different just so story about the rise of liberalism, but is the civility that you're talking about, is that discussed as the way, as part of this liberalism during this, you know, the, the, the this period four or 500 years ago, three to 500 years ago, depending on where you want to start the story?
1: I love this. You've just thrown a lot at me. There's so many places we could go with that. So let's start with the story of of Norbert Elias. Uh, He's a Swiss German sociologist. Um, He told a story about civilization and the rise of liberalism and liberal democracy. Um, He said that from the in the Middle Ages, he says we were vulgar and crass and barbaric. We would, you know, belch and fart in public with no shame. And we would defecate in the corner of a banquet hall. And, um, and, and, and that he says people in the middle ages were really prone to violence and to, um, just outbursts and, and that, you know, just a, a calm meet, meeting at the dinner table or a meeting could you know, just erupt in, erupt in, in, in violence and, and murder, uh, at any moment. And then he says, it was the rediscovery of classical greco-roman texts um, during the renaissance period where where people across europe began to become re-enchanted with this idea of civilization and the conduct befitting a member of civilization and the civis and so what does it mean to be civilized and how might we conduct ourselves in a way that is conducive to a member of civilization and Elias says that um, there was this vast and, and wide uh, rediscovery of manners and etiquette and, and and social control. That's that's really the the key there. That uh, so impulse control rather that we're not going to just be defined by our um, passions and and what we and our, and our emotions in a given moment. Um, and and this is like you know the the invention of the fork and manners and elaborate rituals of, of the courts of Europe. And he says that this individual social control, this individual level of self-control, that is what allowed for the rise of peace and prosperity and, and like that self-governance allowed for the classical liberal democratic project to arise. That, that, um, and in my book, I talk about that there there are two social contracts. We're familiar with the traditional social contract between citizen and sovereign, that we go from a state of nature, into civil society, surrender certain rights, and receive certain protections from the sovereign. Um, And that's the traditional uh, social contract that Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau give us, and others um, unpack, like Spinoza. But there's also a vertical social contract between citizens. And sometimes that vertical social contract is governed by laws. Far more often, it's governed by social norms. People choosing to voluntarily restrain themselves for the sake of others and for the sake of society and, and, and living well together in civilization. So um, Elias tells this, this story of, uh, of, of the history of, of civilization um, and, and liberal democracy through the lens of, of manners and social norms. And his hero here is also a hero in my book and a hero in my life in general. His name's Erasmus of Rotterdam. He's kind of lost to history um, because he was this—he's uh, this unsung hero of moderation. So he, it, it's, as scholars like to say, that he laid the egg of the Protestant Reformation. That Martin Luther. Hatched, so he had. He was Catholic. He never left the Catholic Church, but he had criticisms, many criticisms of the Catholic Church. Um, he famously translated uh, a Greek New Testament that showed the er- many errors in, in, the, in the in the in the in the Latin Vulgate, like the commonly used um, version of the Bible that was used by, by Catholicism during this day. So he was not love not beloved by by Catholics and he was way too ironic he was way too peace loving and, and 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 friendly and he just wanted like he didn't want to get in fights anyone and and Luther was very belligerent and you know especially near the end of his life gone fights with everyone and they had a very very famous falling out but he so he, he and he never was radical enough to start his own tribe. like he didn't leave the church and start his own um community and and so he's kind of lost to history today because he never left the church um, so he's not claimed by Protestants because he was critical not not claimed by Protestants because he never left um he, he, he didn't leave the church and he's not claimed by Catholics because he was critical of, of Catholicism. so he's kind of lost to history but um, he was this unsung hero of moderation that is is worth remembering for many reasons but Erasmus Wrote this book called Handbook on Manners for Children. And uh, uh, Elias, in his, in his story of civilization and then rise of liberal democracies, pinpoints Erasmus's book, which was this international bestseller across Europe, translated into every European language, as. Um, as the origin of this like re, re, reinvention of manners and an and, and attention to social control and and, and modulating our, our behavior in ways great and small when we were with others. Uh, and there, Erasmus's book, this handbook on manners, uh, is the only book that I'm aware of that organizes manners according to body part. Like he has a chapter on the, on the eye is a chapter on, um, (laughs) on the nose. And it's just, it's just very funny. He's, he's peculiarly against winking. He's like, that's the prerogative of a tuna fish, not befitting of a, (laughs) of a, of a member of civilization. Um, but I will, I will say I love his final um, mandate, his final maxim in his, uh, in his book on, on manners, he says that I think really embodies kind of the ethos of true civility. He says, readily ignore the faults of others and avoid falling short yourself, which I think is that it kind of sums up like we're today, especially, but it's like, you know, again, the human condition, um, we're so quick to, to, to point the finger, right? What did Christ say? Like, why are you pointing at the speck in your brother's eye when you have belong in your own? It's because it's easier. It's, it's, it feels nicer to point at the speck in our brother's eye. And that's what that I think is so emblematic of our moment today. Like if we're blaming others and, and pointing out and criticizing the faults of those around us, then we're okay for just a moment. The spotlight is not on us. And, um, and I think that it's, it's, so fun that, that Erasmus gets this idea in the human condition. He counters that, that tendency that we still struggle with today. He says, you know, readily ignore the faults of others and avoid falling short yourself. Just like, you know, turns this ethos of, of blame and shame in our own moment, totally on its head. And I think that's, that's very much an idea and he's a person we need today.
0: So in my book about uh, suicide of the West, I took this position that basically, uh, what I call the miracle liberal democratic capitalism, whatever you want to call it, I I call it a miracle because we don't know where it comes from. We don't know why it happened. If it was natural, it would have happened sometime earlier in the evolutionary record. And, um, uh, but I, I say it starts in England and the problem is, is there are a bunch of people who claim, no, it really starts in, in Holland and um i I always make a joke about how if there are any Dutch jingoists out there, we can have this argument later, and it just I get this feeling that you're on team Holland um <laughs> from all this Erasmus stuff, which which makes me want to fight but um, um so uh let's 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 gear move towards the 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 present moment a little bit. um I'm inclined to say that. Things are ruder today in the sense that God. there's this guy, Wayne. Unlike you, I'm, I'm old and my brain, when I start, to, the second I try to remember something that I have on the tip of my tongue, it's like when you lose something in the space between the console and your car seat, when you reach for it, you actually push it further away.
1: <laughs> this black hole.
0: <laughs> yeah. You have to like <laughs> not look at it and it'll come back out of your, your head. Um,
1: And then, and then it'll come back and wake you up at night.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not Applebee. Anyway, he has this definition of rhetoric, which is that rhetoric is, um, the art of probing what we think we ought to believe. And, um, the way manners and politeness and civility are discussed today, I agree with you that it's entirely possible. Like you watch Deadwood and you're like, well, that wasn't a very polite or mannered society, you know? Um, Things might've been ruder in the past, but you didn't have a lot of people attacking the ideal of not being rude. You didn't have people attacking the ideal of kindness, of attacking the ideal of civility, right? So like, there's a difference. I'm one of these guys, I write this column every five years or so in defense of hypocrisy, because hypocrisy at least points to what an ideal is. Um, no one ever, like as my friend Ramesh Panuru wrote years ago, when Hugh Hefner took his kids out of the Playboy Mansion to raise them, no one criticized him for not living down to his standards. right? Um, we have, you know, like uh, hypocrisy is, is the tribute vice pays to virtue, and that it acknowledges that there's a standard. And we live in a society now that hates hypocrisy more than it hates the standards themselves, right? And so we have this culture which praises authenticity and says um, it is better, like the, the, the glutton who says gluttony is bad is a worse person than the glutton who says everyone should be a glutton because at least that person's consistent. And like I, one of my, I don't give a lot of parenting advice because I don't think I have the authority or the position to do it. <laughs> my, my kid's great, but I don't, I think there's luck as much as anything else, but Um, the one thing I always tell people is parents who are terrified of being hypocrites are terrible parents. Like part of being a parent is being a hypocrite. It part. And what I mean by that is like, if you had, um, you have these parents who say, well, you know, I did drugs in high school. So like, who am I to tell my kid? And it's like, you're their parent. That's who you are. And like the whole point of being a parent is to like, learn some lessons from your own life and want something better for your kid. And, um, and so you set rules that maybe you wouldn't have followed when you were their age, but that's why, you know, they're good rules. And, um, and so today in society, whether it's like the Steve Bannon crowd or, um, um, or all the sort of post-liberal left that gets a free pass for their post-liberalism, um, the, you know, the code pink people, the pro Hamas people, people tearing down posters of kidnapped babies. Um, there, I don't think there has been such a concerted war on the concepts of civility and decency, um, except for a brief period in the 1960s in, in American history. And so I do think in that sense, things are worse, but like, I'm kind of curious, where do you think this moment comes from? And like, other than reviving this history, what do we do about it
1: i think i think you're absolutely right that we live in this moment that where the stakes feel particularly high and we feel that we we hear that rhetoric that sort of apocalyptic rhetoric across the political spectrum people saying the other side is so bad and 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 so wrong so evil and and they're they're a threat to our existence and we need to be willing to do or say anything in order to win, it's this sort of high stakes mentality. Um, it's the same. It's the same mentality in times of war, right? Like killer be killed, and 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 that we see this across history and culture. The temptation to dehumanize the other, the opposition, the person we disagree with, so that we feel more justified in doing or saying whatever is necessary to win. And that it that is exactly when we need civility most, when we have to maintain the dignity, the person, or the bare minimum of respect of the other that we owe them just by virtue of our, of our shared dignity, our, our shared moral status as members of the human community. It's precisely in times of war precisely in the time of high stakes elections. Another thing I would say, and, um, you know, I get this from Dr. King who in turn got it from Socrates. Um, Socrates says that, um, virtue is its own reward. A virtue is virtue is a well-ordered soul. Uh, it's a well-proportioned soul where, where one's loves and passions are rightly ordered. And it's, it's, it's a well-ordered, a society of well-ordered souls where, where the head, reason, love of wisdom rules the passions, restrains the passions through thumos or courage. Uh, that's what a well-ordered individual soul is. And a society of well-individual souls produces a just society. Plato says that, that a society is the soul writ large. Um, so Socrates says that that virtue is its own reward because it's a healthy soul. Vice is its own punishment because it's, it's sickness of the soul. So when we see people, um, you know, being malicious and vicious, that, 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 that is a symptom of an unhealthy soul. And those people don't deserve our scorn. They deserve our compassion because whether they realize it or not, when they're hurting others, they are hurting themselves too. Dr. King in his letter from Birmingham jail makes the same, borrows this idea And he talks about how segregation is mutually harmful. He says segregation, you know, dehumanizing another human being by making them feel inferior through laws and institutions and social norms. It it, it harms, obviously, the the segregated by giving them a false sense of inferiority. It also harms the segregator by giving them a false sense of superiority. and that's actually where the title of my book, The Soul of Civility, comes from. Because just as, and I borrow this idea that just as um, incivility is mutually harmful and mutually deforming of, 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 of the human soul, the spirit in both parties, um, civility is mutually ennobling. Um, so, and I think people insufficiently appreciate that, that when we, when we harm others, when we, when we adopt this high stakes, Mentality where we're willing to do anything, you know, step on anyone, punch anyone to, or you know, own the libs to, to get ahead. That that we don't we insufficiently appreciate that we debase ourselves too. We um, we dehumanize ourselves. We become as we exercise cruelty and exert power over others. We become less human and less humane. But conversely, when we're gracious, kind, hospitable, when we act in the tradition of beneficence. Towards others, we affirm their humanity. We uplift them, um, and we ennoble ourselves as well. It's mutually mutually um, beneficial, as well. I'm happy to talk about Albert Schweitzer too, if you want to the, <laughs> about about civilization. I know that's something you care about. Uh, we can go wherever you want to go.
0: Yeah. So, um, um, just uh, some, some cleanup operation stuff from my own because part of the problem of having a podcast where a lot of people have read stuff that I've written is that people say, how come you didn't blah, 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 you know, because they know where my positions are on things. And so I have to anticipate criticism from people. One, we don't have to get into it, but in defense of Samuel Johnson, because I am pro patriotism and earlier (laughs) years, I would agree with him. Um, I'm pro patriotism, anti-nationalism. Johnson was basically saying that specifically about William Pitt, who was, uh, he was basically saying he wasn't saying patriotism qua patriotism bad. He was saying that if all you have left to argue is patriotism, you don't have any other good arguments. That's why it's the last refuge. But the more important point is because I, I have been carrying receipts on Gandhi for a long time, and like, um, and and the there are very few podcasts that you will go on where you'll hear anti-Gandhi talk. Um, so uh, look, I, on the big picture, Gandhi was right. Gandhi was an interesting dude. I always encourage people to read more Paul Johnson on Gandhi. Uh, But um, uh, he was a little too obsessed with his own bowel movements. Um, But the the more important point is that he, um, uh, and he also let his wife die uh, saying that she shouldn't take Western medicine, but then he took it when he got sick. Um, And um, Gandhi also, uh, so one of the problems I have with, um, and this is more of a foreign policy point than a domestic policy point, but we tend to do a lot of mirroring of our own culture. And we think that because we're a good and decent culture, other countries necessarily have good and decent cultures too, and that they see moral and ethical issues the same way. And, um, you know, Orwell's really great about this. Orwell points out that if, if the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany had any Gandhis, we have no idea. Because they were killed in the middle of the night along with their families, and Gandhi used nonviolence in part because he recognized that it was a successful would be a successful strategy on British people because British people have for all the faults of the British Empire, and there were many they're a good and decent liberal people with rightly formed consciences and exposing them to uh, their own barbarity, their own dehumanizing barbarity towards other people is a way to get them to stop the barbarity. And, um, um, but Gandhi, you know, he never, he never said to, you know, his, 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 his advice to the British in response to Nazi aggression was that they should just surrender the island to the Nazis, but keep their principles. Um, his advice to the Jews was that the Jews should just commit mass suicide, um, rather than surrender to the Nazis. God, my name's Goldberg, not the best advice, in my opinion. And the reason why I just think it's relevant to bring up now is that, one, um, I think it's, it's important to take away a little of the sainthood from Gandhi and put a little of the decency on the British that for all, Gandhi's tactical genius about picking this policy was in recognizing the basic decency of the British people. And we're living in this moment with an enormous amount of the technical word for it in the social science is bullshit um, about um, you know po- uh, settler colonialism and all of this kind of stuff vis-a-vis Israel, and um, it's just worth pointing out that if the Palestinians had adopted a policy of Gandhi-ish or Martin Luther King-style peaceful nonviolence, Israel's would Israelis would have cl- climbed out of their tanks, right? I mean the Israelis are are would be total suckers for peaceful nonviolence. They're not suckers for people who cut off the heads of their babies and rape, you know, teenagers. And um, and I think that this is one of these things that gets lost because we teach people not to be very patriotic in this country anymore and not to have any pride in our nation. And one of the ways we, one of the reasons why we've gotten dehumanized is we tell people that our country is a bad country, that our institutions are bad institutions, that our history is something to be ashamed of, that we've never taken the high road. um, When in fact... Despite all of our flaws, and they are many, starting with slavery, um, it was the hypocrisy of slavery that was its undoing because it didn't conform with America's highest principles. And teaching people that we are, in fact, a decent country and should be a decent country is really freaking important because if you don't teach people that, you get people on the left and the right saying, Decency is surrender to the other people. It's for suckers, and that's sort of mm-hmm. the essence of a lot of the Trumpism stuff. Sorry for the rant, mm-hmm. but I just want to. get No,
1: there. no. Um, I can we go on a, a tiny rabbit hole because you said this show is pro rabbit hole. So I love We're how pro-rabbit. you. <laughs> I have this idea. Um, I, I just want to affirm a sort of mental framework and a, an approach that you used with with Gandhi and the British Empire for a moment. I have this idea in the book called unbundling. And it's a mental framework where we see the part in light of the whole. We see the good alongside the bad in it, a person, in a nation, in a story. Our our moment now, it's, you know, this it's not a surprise, like it's, it's anti-nuance, right? Everything's good or evil, right or wrong. But when we, re- in reality, like, we're both and as human beings, right? We have a little bit of good, a little bit of bad in, in all of us. And we live in this era of strange perfectionism where we want, we expect everyone to like come out fully formed in their beliefs and and, and perfect, like never making a mistake, never erring ever. And so I impact I this idea of unbundling People seeing uh, like uh, this is like the, a manifestation of this is is cancel culture. Like someone, we capture someone at their worst, saying something thoughtless, unkind, doing something careless. We capture them in video, we plaster it all over the internet, and we destroy them, and they're no longer welcome in polite society. They're they're fired from their job. They're they're alienated. They're they're you know they're we tell them that they're worthless because I've done this one thing that we can all like feel good for about ourselves for a moment in seeing that you know at least we're not doing that. And um and, and unbundling people is again. Uh, what, seeing the mistake, the shortcoming? in light of the irreducible dignity and worth as as human beings, Alexander Pope said, to err is to human is to be human. To forgive is to. is is divine. Um, and that, that we're, we are all going to, to make mistakes. We're all going to have, um, have shortcomings. Um, and and what does it look like to, especially when it comes to others in our own moment? Um, and and I think that to, to see the part and let it hold, but I think what's interesting is, uh, you know, we have this, um, you, you, you shared things about, it goes both ways. Like you shared things about Gandhi that I, I hadn't, I didn't know, you know, for example, his obsession with his, his fecal matter or, um, you know, other, other flaws about him. But like we, we I think it's healthy to, to say that even the people we reify in society had faults or eccentricities that we can be like, okay, that's bizarre. As a, as opposed to engaging in this hero worship, but we're actually not allowed to do that. We we have this strange like mental dualism where again it's like you know right or wrong, good or evil. Like this person thinks this one thing, okay, they're good. This person did this one thing, okay, they're bad. As opposed to uh, it, it, it's so essentializing of the dignity and beauty and diversity of the human personality and what is it what does it look like to be curious instead about um, the fullness of who we are? Like pers- a person holds a view on something what what experiences have they had in life that that led them to have those views like we're all infinitely um infinitely complex i want to i want to you know just affirm that that way of thinking like
0: (laughs) yeah no you 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 raise a point that is one of my great peeves is like i think martin luther king was absolutely incandescently morally correct about the need to judge people by the contents of their character rather than the color of their skin and it's really funny how a lot of left-wingers sort of particularly on the black left get very annoyed by conservatives celebrating that part of Martin Luther King's thought. And they say, well, you don't, you know, you should, you should celebrate the whole man, you know, and he was also a socialist and an anti-imperialist and 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 it's like, well, maybe I just think he was right about this thing and not necessarily entirely right about these other things. I mean, there are, there are things that there are lots of things where like people think I'm very right about X, but very wrong about Y there's no transitive property that says, you know, because I say two plus two is four. That also, that, that means when I say, you know, the square root of pi is a duck. That doesn't have to mean that like one, if one is right, they're both right. I mean, I can be wrong about something and people can be flawed. There's a, there's a moral theologian guy. Uh, who was a Jewish ethics professor in Boston and, or UMass or something. I can't remember where, but he had this great line talking about the hypocrisy thing where apparently he was a huge philanderer in his own private life, but he taught ethics and morality. And someone asked him about the disconnect. And he said, look, the sign pointing to Boston doesn't have to go there. And all he meant by that is that you can point out certain truths while still being a flawed human being. And and similarly, you can point out the flaws of other human beings without undermining some of the truths that they illuminated.
1: Yes. No, it's a it's a great point. I have a whole chapter in my book on, on integrity and why civility supports integrity. Uh, the etymology of integrity, um, it's, it, it 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 speaks to like stru- structural integrity, like all parts of the self making sense together, like inner and outer, corroborating one another. And um, it, it, it's interesting because you, a moment ago, you, you you mentioned hypocrisy a few times. You mentioned the cult of authenticity in our moment right now. I actually disambiguate um, hypocrisy from inauthenticity. So hypocrisy comes from the Greek word for hypocrisis, which means play acting or pretense. And it's when, and I, I define hypocrisy as when the inner and the outer, like inner motivations and outer conduct, there's a disconnect there for self serving purposes for example your boss comes into work and you say oh your haircut looks great when you secretly hate it because why do you do that though because your performance review is later that week you're trying to you know preemptively ingratiate yourself to him before or her, her before performance review right so that's hypocrisy it's it's disconnect between inner motives um, and outer conduct for the sake of self and i i, dis- I distinguish that between that and inauthenticity which is disconnect between inner motives and outer conduct for the sake of others. For example, you know, you, you come home after a long day of work and, um, or, or, or or I do, and I'm like annoyed at my husband for doing something, but I bite my tongue. Like I don't say something, I don't just like let him have, I don't, I don't, um, you know, say whatever's on my mind that I want to say because I'm frustrated or annoyed um, at him or at the world. Why? Because I love him. And I, it's for the sake of the relationship, right? Like, so my, my inner self, my inner motives, my inner disposition really wants to just like let loose and like, you know, vent my spleen, but I'm going to restrain that. Like it's a, it's a disconnect between inner conduct and, and uh, sorry, inner disposition, outer conduct for the sake of Relationship for the sake of marriage, for the sake of the human social project of flourishing with others, and I. Um, so I, I think that's that's interesting and helpful that that also civility um, fosters that integrity, that that all parts of the self making sense together. That even in that inauthenticity, even when there is that disconnect between inner and outer, because it's for the sake of. Of, of of others, of, of of flourishing with others, that that's aligned with our values, with our higher values of, of restraining the self for the sake of 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 the fragility of of democracy and and life with others.
0: So um, we don't have a lot of time left, and I don't want to keep you too long. But um, uh, you worked in the Trump administration with under Betsy DeVos. Um, I'm suspecting I don't know, you know, I don't know where your stance is on Trump or any of these things. But I'm suspecting, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that you'd think it was not particularly helpful that in a recent speech, he talked about how he was going to root out the vermin in our society um, and eliminate them. Um, it seems to me that that runs sort of, that pets the cat backwards on the whole civility thing.
1: That's horrible. I um, I did not know about, about that recent speech. I tend to be a net you know, not consumer of social media whatever, if that if there's a word for that. Like I tend to read old books. I tend to not read the news, not read the commentary. So that's that's horrible. I mentioned Trump one time in my book. It's three quarters of the way through. Earlier versions of the manuscript didn't mention him at all. And I had many people say that's just too conspicuously absent. Like you have to at least mention it. So I, I was like, fine. And the reason I didn't was because I mean, Trump's like a Rorschach test. Like, you know, it's like, you know, the moment I mention him or anyone mentions him, like all they focus on is that one thing. And I just didn't want, my book's not a political tell-all. It's so far from it. Like I, I, I wrote my book in hopes of it being this tool of, of healing, of of reconciliation. I wanted it to be a humanistic manifesto in these very divided times of like the gift of being of being human. and, and that and, and affirming our common humanity in, in this very broken and divided moment. So I was very hesitant to to mention Trump, but I, I do. And in one paragraph, I say, you know, there's no question he coarsened our public discourse and made this challenge to civility and doing life with others, flourishing across difference. Worse, but he did not cause this problem. Like he's, you know, a symptom, not the cause. And the problem with people that claim that it's it's Donald Trump or it's Facebook and Twitter, it's Mark Zuckerberg, it's some like big bad um, that that it cheapens the problem. Like again, this is a timeless human problem. It's 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 it's, this is a problem of the human condition of our it's it's the tension between our social and our and and our selfish natures. It's it's a problem of as Blaise Pascal said the greatness and wretchedness of man that we're, that's the human condition. We're capable of altruism and and generosity and benevolence, capable of barbarism and monstrosity, committing atrocities towards our, our fellow human being. Uh, that's one thing I wanted to mention when, when you had mentioned the, the the treaty of Westphalia, that uh, we take for granted peace and prosperity, prosperity today, like conflict and war and, 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 that, that is the, that is the norm. That's the default of, of human history. Like that's the, <laughs> and that we live in relative times of peace and prosperity. And yes, we're, we're, we're witnessing atrocities and barbarism happening in Israel and the Middle East right now. And, and, and just untold human suffering. And we're always scandalized and we're always caught off guard when that happens. And that's a privilege. <laughs> that's one like really beautiful and a wonderful thing of our moment that, that, um, um, that that conflict is not is not our norm, uh, at least comparatively to to most of human history. So, um, all that to say, yes, you know, no question that that Trump has not made this problem better. In fact, has has made it worse and, and continues to. Uh, but people that but people that claim that he's the problem, it, like the moment he he disappears from public life, there will still be this problem. So if we misidentify the the cause, we won't accurately. Uh, think clearly about about meaningful solutions, and, and in terms of solutions, they start with us. My theory of social change is individual. It's at the micro individual person to person level. Uh, you're, you know, squarely a member of the intelligentsia, Jonah, I didn't write this book for you. You know, thanks for having me on your show, but I wrote this book for, (laughs) for, for for America. I wrote this book for, I, for, as I hope for, you know, everyday Americans to like, you know, reclaim their agency and, and their, and their sphere of influence and say, I'm going to be a part of the solution. I can't control what's happening in Washington. What the, what the tweet of the day is, what's, you know, what's going on around the world, but I'm going to make myself and my Community better. I, I I I stumbled upon this 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 revolution of people healing our social world. When we we fled Washington D.C. I call myself a refugee from federal government and moved to Indianapolis, Indiana. And my first friend in Indiana, she her name was Joanna. She came up to me after church one day and said, "Hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime?" And I never heard the word porching used as a verb before but we went to her home we didn't have any friends in town so we went to her home that afternoon and i realized that she's staging this subversive quiet revolution front porch revolution from her from her great big front veranda. she had curated people across across race across politics across class across geography just to inhabit a shared space um, and 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 again, she's she realized that she can't change what's happening, happening, you know, across the world or even at city hall down the street. Um, but she's she's reclaiming ownership and and her duty and, and civic responsibility and saying, I'm going to make my community better and my family stronger. And I'm gonna I'm gonna control what I can control. So there's the and there are It's, it's not even about the porch. I, I got a Novak fellowship to study this phenomenon across the country. That there are people like Joanna using coffee shops, using their front stoop, using. In their front lawn. They're just they're creating a space where, again, to 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 allow people to be seen and known and loved um, in this in this time of division.
0: It's it's funny. So like this podcast is called The Remnant, and it's Isaiah's dr- job. A directly a reference, a reference to Isaiah's job, the essay by Albert J. Nock in the 1930s. And what you're describing is basically a big chunk of what he means by the remnant. It's this sort of substratum of decent right peop- people, right thinking people. Upon which a society sustains itself and potentially renews itself, and um, and it's very weird how much of your argument dovetails the argument in, in my book about how you know human nature is inherently, in many ways, inherently corrupting, and that when we give in too much to it, that's when we get into trouble. When we try to channel it and hone it and and and, and buttress the better aspects of it, that's when. Good things can happen. And part of my objection to the cult of authenticity stuff is people thinking that the highest source of moral authority is our gut. And that if you just go with your gut and go with your instincts, you can't go wrong. And the story of humanity for 250,000 years is the story of societies going with their guts and killing a lot of people. And um, you should actually sort of use a higher part of your anatomy. To sort of figure out a lot of things.
1: It's so funny. I, you met, uh, you, when you, when you quoted Arendt, I love that. I love that quote from her. Um, you know, anyone who says human nature is inherently good has never had children, right? Like Rousseau, he was a bad parent, you know, like he abandoned his kids at his orphanage. Like I would not take parenting advice from Rousseau. I, I might take it from you. So if you have parenting advice, I think I might take it from you, Jonah, but I, we I ran would, through most of it <laughs> from, from Rousseau. Like, you know, human nature is it's it's rough and that's what this project of civilization is the metaphor of the garden is central to my book i don't know if you um i, I you had a copy of the book that, that the 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 olive grove is the oldest cultivated crop um in the the olive tree rather and that is um that that's a to what this project of civilization is it's never a foregone conclusion you know every generation has to cultivate it's next generation. And so that these values can be, can be passed on so that civilization can sustain that our institutions can be sustained. Um, I I, I say that civilization is a garden and all we can control is our, is our individual plot of land, our individual plot of land. We each have to decide what are we going to, going to plant in, in, in our, in our individual plot of land. Are we going to plant seeds of charity and grace and kindness and beneficence, uh, which, which produce uh, regenerative crops and, and, uh, Um, beautiful flowers and produce abundance that create beauty for the, for the plots of land around us and contribute to the joint, the garden of civilization, this flourishing and diverse ecosystem of, of birds and bees, or are we going to plant weeds, seeds of weeds and thistle beds and that are corrosive, that zap nutrients from the soil and invade, um, surrounding crops that all we can control is our individual plot of land, but that we each have a role to play in supporting this joint garden this this, this joint project of, of civilization living well with others um, and so that's that's very much the, the theory of social change in, in my book we can't uh, control what other people are plotting and cultivating in, in their in their little plots of land we can only control ours but that what we do in ours has big consequences for for our democracy for our society in general all right
0: Alexandra Hudson thank you so much for being on I really appreciate it and I uh, hope to have you back sometime
1: thank you so much Jonah really appreciate you having me
0: Okay, so Alexandra has left the uh, studio. Apologize if there were some hiccups and background noises. She had some connectivity issues, so we had to start over again a couple times. And and sometimes I couldn't hear her full answer and yada, yada, yada. These these things happen. It hasn't happened in a while that we've had this much trouble. Um, knock on wood. People who've read Suicide of the West can probably tell how chomping at the bit I was, where I sometimes indulged it, such as human nature discuss where we kind of overlap on a lot of things because it's, um, it's, it's, it's sort of like a corollary or addendum to a lot of my arguments. And so I, I thought it was very interesting. She's utterly charming. Um, recommend the book and, um, I feel like I'm supposed to tell you guys something, but I can't remember it. So we will put it in. I will, I will, I will remember it by the time I do the solo at the end of the week. Uh, our first AMA is up. Um, got some criticism about it already. Some of it is actually, I think, well, well, uh, well-targeted and um, or on point. And I think that um, one of the things that can make the semi-regular monthly, semi-monthly AMAs better is uh, more questions, more weird questions, good questions, quirky questions, eggheady questions, um, existential questions. Uh, so if you have some, send them to, uh, the remnant at the dispatch.com and, uh, we'll get them on in the queue for the next one. Other than that, uh, thanks again for the concern about, uh, Zoe, for those of you who have heard about it and, um, she's going to be okay, but I'm just, uh, she was just so scared to be dropped off at the vet yesterday. And I just have this feeling like she blames me and I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night and have my Throat torn out mostly by gums. Um and uh other than that, I'll see you next time.
1: No, you won't. This is a podcast.